morning. Great to be with everybody. We've had a busy week, haven't we, with the boot camp? How many of you went to one of the boot camp events this week? All right. We had a busy week. For those of you uh, visiting, we, um, we planned this week to sort of be our spiritual training week, to get us ready for an incredible end of the year. Uh, everybody was meeting at, at 5.45 or 6 a.m., Praying. We had uh, daily challenges to invite our neighbors or invite our friends or, you know, deliver candy. And I know in Libby's group with the Marrieds and Rancho, they were delivering a lot of candy and goodies and cupcakes to everybody. Because I know that uh, was the heart there. She was inspired. And so I know they were doing that. Uh, we were sharing our testimony with people, right? Sharing uh, how we uh, came to God uh, with our neighbors. And we had a tremendous time. I hope you were encouraged by it. I hope your spirits have been lifted. Amen. Uh, you know, as well, it's so exciting. I know we were talking to our families, and I have a family member out I want to welcome. Her name is Hannah. She's my little sister, a student at UCSB. So that's Hannah right there, Hannah Lounsbury. We had a lot of Lounsberries in the car this morning, which is really cool. You know, uh, today, uh, or tomorrow actually, is Labor Day, and it's a national holiday. How many of you know the, why we have Labor Day? How many, do you guys know the history of it a little bit? Some of us, who, who really knows? Hardly anyone knows. I figured that. We don't really know. Why do we have this national holiday? Okay, how many of you have ever worked and uh, been paid for your work in America? Any of you ever worked and been paid for your work? There's a lot of you with no hands up that you haven't worked ever. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking my son's 14 and he's gotten paid for work at times. So he, even he could raise his hand. You know, this holiday in America is for you. It's to commemorate and to uh, honor that really the labor movement. Is, it started with that, but it constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions of workers uh, in America they've made toward the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. Started over a hundred years ago. Uh, actually, there was a little bit of a dispute with the labor movement back a hundred years ago, and they passed this. You know, hey, we'll have a holiday to appease the labor unions, and and but you know, a lot of the labor unions were, were doing this anyway. So they go, hey, let's just make this a national holiday for those of us that labor, and we all labor every day. So we figured, okay, let's do it. Now the interesting thing is that, you know, it's not real. It's not a spiritual holiday, but we can make everything a spiritual holiday if we think of the spiritual reasons behind it. And there is a far greater work that we need to be thinking about as we live our lives here today. There is what I call the greatest work that can be done. And Jesus talked about it in John chapter 6, verse 27. He told the people there, he said, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And what he's talking about is there is a great work that God has prepared for all the human race. It's a work that lasts for eternity. The work of God is to know him and live with him and be with him for eternity. We're going to study a little bit about the greatest work of all time on this, you know, celebration of Labor Day. We want to really begin to commemorate the spiritual labor that God has prepared for all the human race. Let's go to God in prayer and we're going to study the word together. 
Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, It's so great to be together with our spiritual family, with our physical families, with our friends, with neighbors. Father, thank you for bringing all of us wherever we've driven in from to worship you. Father, thank you for this day that, that our minds can be focused on the plans you have for us, on the work that you have prepared for us, on the dreams that you have set in motion to be fulfilled through the lives you've called us to. Be with us now as we study your word. Be with each one of our hearts. Open our minds and hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin studying today in the book of Acts. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Our quiet time challenge during our boot camp was the book of Acts. We read through the book of Acts. You know, many of us were journaling it, writing in it, studying it. And I was studying it. I thought I'm going to definitely speak uh, from the book of Acts. And I've chosen Acts chapter 13. Uh, I, I believe it's going to relate in a, in a great way with this concept of the greatest work of all time. So Acts 13, we're going to begin reading there in verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. It says, In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Point number one on the greatest work of all time is called. You have been called to be a part of the greatest work of all time. And we find here in the book of Acts, the church, you know, has been built in different lands outside of Judea where it started. And the city of Antioch there had developed a tremendous church. What's amazing is they had incredible leaders there from all over the world. Right. You had all nationalities. As you read and you see there, they had Barnabas, they had Simeon called Niger and 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 the reference there in Latin is it was uh, possibly a North African territory they were from. The the, the ethnic background had had uh, a variety of uh, relations added into it. As you look at the names, you, you have talent here. You had Manian, who was the um, actually uh, had been brought up. So a close personal friend raised in the home of Herod the Tetrarch, so of a very affluent background. Of course, you had Saul, who was trained as a young child in the religious doctrines of Judaism and had risen to the highest ranks of being a Pharisee. And they had all gathered together, and they were leading this metropolitan church in the city of Antioch. And they were putting their energy, their talent, and their time into a great work. And, you know, all of us here today, we have been called... To a great work. We have been summoned or appointed, if you look a little closer. You've been appointed to a great work. Wherever you are today, whatever age you are, whatever status, whatever stage of life you're in, you've been called. Are you a teen who doesn't know a whole lot about the Word of God or about Jesus? You've been called. Maybe you're a teen whose parents are disciples. Who have taught you from, you know, youth, the word of God, and have trained you and taught you and prayed with you. You've been called. Are you a campus student 
looking for the answers to the meaning of life or assuming you already have them. A lot of college students think they already have those answers. But you've been called to a great work. Are you a single? Are you part of our awesome edge ministry? Are you looking for fulfillment? Are you thinking, hey, maybe, maybe a relationship is the answer to a sense of fulfillment? You've been called to the greatest work of all time. Are you married and starting a family? Are you thinking, if I just had the perfect family, that's the answer? You've been called. Maybe you've had the family. Maybe you're in the middle class of life and you're beginning to think, you know, is this really all there is? You've been called. Maybe, and I'm getting a little older, so more of my friends are this way. Your children are already up out of high school. They're out of the house. And you're beginning to refocus and think about, hey, what's, what's my plan? What am I supposed to do with my life? Are you wrestling with your value and your sense of, what do I do now? Are you a grandma or a grandfather? And have you seen different families uh, that, that you've been connected to, raised their children and moved on, and you're in the, the twilight years of your life. You have been called. Where are you at today? I remember me. I remember at, uh, after graduating or just as I was graduating from college, having deep questions about what's the meaning of life. What is worth really giving your all for? What is worth your very best in life? You ever ask yourself that question? What's worth your very best? At the time, I was working as a stockbroker. And I was ambitious for money. I was ambitious and I was looking at older men. Men in their 30s, a couple men in their 40s, and I was in my 20s. And I was looking at them for answers to life. What is the meaning? What is worth my very best? One of the men working at the company I worked with was making over $500,000 a year. But as I began to learn about his life, and as I got to know his children, I realized he doesn't have the answers to life. He just has a lot of money. And I began looking, are there other answers? The guy in his 30s who was making over $200,000 a year. He was envying my life because I was running around, you living this worldly, ungodly, you know, chasing women, chasing money, fast cars, L.A. lifestyle. And he's in his 30s with the family, and he's looking at me, envious of me. And I thought, you're making over $200,000 a year driving your Mercedes, and you're envying me? I thought, he doesn't have the answers to life either. You know, money is not the answer to the soul's question. Prestige is not the answer to our spirit's longing. Comfort leads to complacency. And a lack of concern for what really counts. You know, we've all been called. Every one of us here today has been called to the greatest work. And the greatest work is a work that lasts beyond what you can see or feel or touch. It's a work that lasts for eternity. And it has everything to do with the souls of men and women. You've been called to a great work. And for me... That's when I, when I was invited out to a local Bible study like we've had in our neighborhoods late, lately. The word of God was read and I said, there's something different here. There's something about these people. The word of God. I've not actually studied the word of God. And I began to see the answers to life as I saw the lifestyles of other disciples. 
And for me, it caused a massive transition. It changed the way I thought. I finally had found something that was worth giving my all to. Just as this great church was growing in the city of Antioch and all these talented, rich, multinational people, they said, you know what? We're giving our all to this work. At age 23, I said, you know what? I'm giving my all to the work of changing souls for eternity. Amen? You're all called. You're all called. You know, I want to hold up a couple of people here. In our, we started a new single parents ministry this weekend. I'm so excited about it. And uh, a couple of the men, single parents, led the way. I was so proud of the men who have raised their children as disciples, even though they don't have that partner in the home helping them out. And uh, Dion McFarland and John Ashby headed it up. I want to hold them up. I'm so proud of them. They are called to make a difference. They, they, they called these people together and said, we're going we're gonna to come with plans. They had a meeting. They said, we're, we're going to make this a ministry that changes lives. I know there are so many like that in our culture today. And they're called to something great. You know, in our EDGE ministry, which is our young professionals and even our young marrieds with no children, our singles and young marriages with no children, you know, we called our, a couple of our recent uh, college graduates who had gotten married to get a part of that, and that's Evan and Michelle. I said, hey, will you be a part of the EDGE and help lead it and work with it, lead a family group and get in there? And they're like, we'll do it. We want to do it. You know, and they, and they helped coordinate the whole boot camp for the EDGE ministry. And I heard that, you know, Evan was like, the, he was on it at 545 every morning. He was there. He was encouraging, but he had high standards and high expectations. And we had, we had just so many of our EDGE ministry members at his meetings early in the morning. People were fired up. They were just convicted. They, they wanted to do better. I'm just seeing a light and a fire in the hearts. And I want to hold up Evan and Michelle. I'm so grateful for the hard work they put in. You've been called, every one of you. Some of you came to L.A. for the wrong reason. Some of you moved for the wrong reason. But you know what? You're called. You're called for the right reason to serve God. You know, we had a young woman in our ministry who really came to L.A. for a man. Can you relate to that? Come for a relationship? She came for a man. Yeah, there was a man that she had her eye on, and he had his eye on her too. So it was easy for her to want to come. And she came on out because, hey, I'm going to work on this relationship. And she grew up going to church, but she never thought, hey, I'll, I'll be a leader and I'll be in the ministry someday. She came for a man to L.A., but she's becoming a women's ministry leader for the campus women. I'm so proud of Kelsey. Kelsey has been raising up. She's been called. She's been growing so much. And I'm very, very proud of what she's been doing. We've all been called to something great. Something much greater than your job. Much greater than the school you're going to. Much greater than your bank account. Much greater than how many friends you have on, on Facebook. Now, if you have a lot of friends on Facebook, you can use that for the greatest work of all time. You can, you know, reach out to them. But, but maybe you're here like me and you're, you know, you, you believe in God, but you know, and I believed in God, but I didn't see this incredible calling. The greatest thing we can do with our life is affect the eternal destiny of other men and women. For me, that's what inspired me. I thought, for one, I, I needed to know God himself as he really was. But man, I was so excited about this calling that my life has value. Your life has so much value. But you've got to heed that calling. Point number two. The greatest work of all time involves being converted. Essentially, it is, the Bible says that you know, the work of God is to believe, right? So essentially, the greatest work, really the truly greatest work, is is your conversion. That's the work of God inside of you. But I want to go ahead and read a little bit more in depth. And we're going to read quickly here because I want to get through quite a lot of this chapter. This happens to be, you know, Paul's first 
complete sermon that we get to hear about. Right, we get to read here his sermon as he's preaching in this, this new city. He goes to the city of Pisidian Antioch, and he preaches there. And before that, we're going to read a little bit about their first missionary journey as, as the great apostle Paul heads out to begin to change the world. So we're going to read rapidly. Stay with me. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 6, and I'm going to read very rapidly, so just hang with me. All right, here we go. It says, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Ilimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Ilimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit. And trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw that what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. So now here we get Paul's first sermon, all right, as he preaches. We get, we get it in text, the first thing he preaches to convert the city. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to all his people as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles. That would by and large be us, unless you literally are from a Jewish background. It is to us this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. 
The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know. That through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your day that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue... The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's stop right there. Converted. One of the greatest works is being converted. One of the greatest works is helping others be converted. There is no greater thing that can happen in our lives than being converted to God. You know, but Paul begins his missionary journey in this, in this uh, island. And as he goes there, he runs across, the, it says, the, 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 the proconsul of the entire area. It's like the governor of the area, the mayor of the town. He's the head guy. And the challenge is the head guy has a, a right-hand advisor who is this sorcerer who's teaching him false stuff. And the first thing I want you to see here is that as Paul begins his missionary journey, you know, he's able to impact the most influential people in the area. What's interesting is that this most influential guy invites he and Barnabas to come speak with him because he wanted to learn the word of God. Let me tell you, high caliber people want to know the truth. People that are your bosses, people that run companies, political leaders, people that are in high places want to know the word of God and have answers to their life. This guy's inviting them to teach him. But just like people in high places in our day, there are many people surrounding them for money. Many people surrounding them for reasons to stop them from from changing their way of things. Because their job's usually based upon their take on life. And so what happens here is this guy, Elemis, is trying to dissuade this, this powerful person from responding to the truth. You know, to be converted, we're going to have to overcome bad influences. To stay faithful, we're going to have to overcome bad influences. This week, we went through a a great time of fasting from the media, from unnecessary or worldly uh, media, TV, uh, music, ungodly music, uh, from internet surfing, needless internet surfing for nothing that had to do with business. Just, Just focus on reading all the different challenges and, you know, has, you know, what we found in our family was, wow, we, we, had, we had more time to talk. We were forced to talk. My son was reading a book, and it was exciting. I was like, wow, he's reading. He's an excellent student, A student, but he doesn't like to read that much. He's reading at night, and he's enjoying I'm like, okay, I'm sold on this plan, okay? We've got to avoid worldly media. Of course, we gave the fast up just on Saturday so we could watch the beginning of college football. My, my UCLA team lost. I, I wish we had kept the fast going. It would have been encouraging probably to have not learned about that. We're going to have to overcome bad influences. And to be converted, you're going to have to overcome some tough influences. 
There are people in our life who do not have the same take on life as Jesus does. Or they may claim, oh, I believe in Jesus. You know, all my fraternity brothers, when I was studying to become a Christian, said, oh, I believe in Jesus. I knew all their lives. They knew we were corrupt people. Sexual impurity, drunkenness, drug use, greed. It was about the self. It was, we were so ungodly, I couldn't believe they were telling me, oh, yeah, we believe in God. We go to church. We, we're Christians. I was like, at least I didn't call myself a Christian while I was in college for a while with you. I mean, a lot of people are calling themselves Christians and living this way. And that's a sad reality. There are bad influences. Some are just plain and simple influence who, who adamantly oppose the word of God. They oppose the teachings of the Bible. We're going to have to overcome that. You know, you're going to have to overcome false teachings. You know, this guy was perverting the false ways of the Lord. One of the biggest false teachings in our culture, in our Americanized culture, where you can study Starbucks, at Starbucks your Bible, and people pat you on the back for reading the Bible. Not, in some countries, that's not happening. But here, hey, you can do it all you want. But you know what our biggest challenge is? It's this false doctrine of easy believism. The false doctrine of easy believism. Hey, church serves me. Hey, give me a time that works for me. Give me a location that works for me. Make my life easy. Oh, if it's hard on my life, I'm not doing that. That is our culture. The thought of, of, of 20 minutes to get to church or 30 minutes or some people 40 or even an hour, that's not a whole lot if you had to walk quite a ways to the local synagogue. A lot of people, that wasn't too bad of a walk if you had to walk, you know, a half hour there and a half hour back. Very common in their day. And yet we've been inundated into this easy lifestyle. So there's easy believism Christianity. Church serves me. If the time doesn't fit my schedule, I can't make it. That is wrong. It is a false doctrine. The cross of Christ was not easy. You know, easy believism is a sort of a result of another false doctrine that's in our culture, in our, in our Christianized culture. And that's the doctrine of, of not only easy believism that's the lifestyle, but easy believism salvation, which says is really salvation without repentance. When Jesus says the work of God is to believe in him, what he's saying is you can't earn your salvation. But, but they understood, their culture understood, real belief involved a lifestyle change. And we find over and over the talk of what real repentance is. See, a false doctrine is that you can be saved without repentance. And that's just not true. And you cannot really repent unless you even know what sins are. You've got to figure out what they are. What does it look like to repent? What does Jesus' lifestyle look like? How do I turn my life over to him? You've got to know that. Jesus, you've got to count the cost before you become his disciple. So you do have to understand it. You know, you notice as Paul is recounting the whole history of the Jews, and he's bringing them up to speed in this text with, you know, who Jesus is and what he was about. He, he ends the whole Old Testament portion with, as, he, as a precursor to Jesus, with John the Baptist. And he says there in verse 24, he says, you know, John preached repentance and baptism. Because, see, even Jesus told everybody repentance and baptism is the way you enter into the kingdom of God. It's not why. The why is what Jesus does for us. Why we do it is the grace of God. But how we do it is repentance and baptism. You know, there's another false doctrine. And it's the false doctrine of you have to be good enough. A lot of us, we just feel like we have to be good enough. 
And really, this was the most powerful. At the time, they didn't have easy believism. Paul wasn't really addressing easy believism. They didn't have that issue. They did later, but not at this point. He was just introducing them to it. But you know, the doctrine of you have to be good enough was inundated in the Jewish mindset. That's why he goes on. He talks about how it is not through the law of Moses that you're going to be made right. He makes it clear. Look with me there in verse 38. He says, therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. See, here's the thing. I've often read that, well, I'm not Jew. I'm not caught up in the law. I'm not caught up in the Ten Commandments. But the reality is that's not true. I believe, now I wasn't as a non-Christian, but I believe I, I was stuck in I got to be good enough. Our entire culture teaches you got to be good enough. Our sense of self-esteem is you got to be good enough. Everything we do is if you're good enough, then you'll feel good. If you succeed enough, you know, Paul was talking about how the, the, the hide-and-seek game was, you know, you know they, they really wanted to be found. Well, I'll be honest, you know, I, I'm so competitive. I've bred into my kids when we play hide-and-seek, man, you better not get found, you know. <laughs> It's like, you better, be, you better be the best hider. I mean, that's how we do it. It's like, we're stuck in this culture of good enough. Good enough. Be the best. Do your best. Do your best. Succeed. And though we may have not grown up in Judaism where we had to obey all these rituals and laws, we grew up in America where it says, you know, you're strat- the society is stratified on money, on success, on prestige. You get the award for the highest grades. And, well, we should honor hard work and success. And God, God likes that. But it's a false doctrine that we have to be con- that we're converted by being good enough. See, we're justified and made right because of Jesus. And when your entire mindset is, "Oh, I gotta be good enough. I gotta be good enough," it's about what I do or don't do, or avoiding the do's and don'ts. And you know, this gets in us even after we become true disciples. You still can be caught in this mindset of your your deepest sense of peace. Is if you, did you accomplish all the goals of boot camp? How'd you do? You, you, maybe you didn't do it. They were hard. I didn't, I didn't hit them all. I missed a few of them. I'm confessing I missed them. But you know what? My salvation is not based upon being good enough. My sense of peace is not, if I'm good enough, if I hit everything, if I am the best. You know, Evan, you know, he's one of the best. He was, he's at everything. He's on his game. But you know what? He's not good enough. Because the only way we get right with God, and you've got to hear this, is through what Jesus has done for us. Romans 8, 31 says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, which he is, that's what the cross says, who can be against us? May 24th, 1992. One of the greatest days of my life. Because a young woman decided that, you know what, I'm not going to get right with God by being good enough. She had plenty of garbage going on in her life. But on that day, she said, Jesus is Lord. And I got to baptize her that day. And, of course, promptly I asked her out on a spiritual, you know, double date with some of the other brothers and sisters. And I married her about a year and a half later. She's my awesome wife, Carrie. And, you know, I'm so grateful that she knows her ultimate salvation, her ultimate sense of peace is not just being good enough. 
Some of us, we're, we're held back from getting converted because we think, well, I'm not there yet. I'm not good enough yet. And what he's looking for is surrender. What he's looking for is the saying, I'm giving you everything. And in giving everything, you'll find out that everything's not enough. That's why Jesus gave everything. And we're transformed by faith in him. And it's worth it. The greatest work, conversion. You know, we had a, a man baptized right there in that baptismal a couple months ago. His name, Charles Hardman. He was our brother. And he gave himself to God. Even though he was sick with cancer, he knew, man, I am going to do the right thing. I am going to experience the greatest work known to man, which is the work of God changing my life by faith in the waters of baptism, coming up and living faithful to him. You know, he passed away in just the last couple days. But you know what? He accomplished the goal. It's a victory. It's a total victory. Amen. I know that the brothers John and John, the guys that studied with him, Darren. What a victory to see God working. He made it. He accomplished it. He got there. He was converted. And you cannot count on tomorrow. You're here today and you've not followed God's clear teaching of understanding the grace and becoming a true disciple. You need to respond quickly. You need to decide, I want to do what it's going to take. I want to understand the work, which is true belief, and what's involved in that, what's repentance and baptism look like. I want to be converted and experience the greatest work of all time. You know, my third point is continue. Look with me in verse uh, 40, uh, 43. It says, when the congregation was dismissed... Many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak to the, wor- the word of God to you first, since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed or called for eternal life believed. You know, we've got to continue in the greatest work of all time we got to continue in it. It's exciting to see it. You're called to it. We're called to this great work. The greatest part of it is the conversion process, being a part of those, having it happen in your own life. But, you know, you got to continue in it. And there's some things that will stop us. Pride and jealousy. You notice how they began to oppose Paul and Barnabas? Why? Because the whole city turned out. Lives were changing. When you begin to change, people will oppose you. When you begin to change, when great things are going on spiritually in your life, people are going to resist you. You know, one of the greatest challenges will be your own pride affecting you. You know, I've noticed a little bit of pride in the campus ministry. I've heard rumors and murmurs of pride. You know, that's not unusual for 18 to 22-year-olds to think they know a lot. I remember myself well. But let me tell you, it will tear apart our ministry and our faith if we do not have humble hearts. 
humble hearts. Look what the apostle, what, what the, the prophet or the John the Baptist, he's apostle prophet, he's neither one. He's, you know, a little different than that. He, was, he came to prepare for Jesus, but look what he does. He was leading the whole movement, right, the end of the Old Testament. And he says, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of the one coming after me. Even though he was leading the religious movement of the day. Hey, I just want to submit. I want to learn. I want to grow. How's your pride this morning? Do you think you know more than the people around you? Have you been resistant to the people around you, helping you, train you, getting in your life? A lot of times, you know, even when we're helping people, we we have a plan where we help train one another. We start lording it over one another instead of winning over one another. And there's a difference. Well, I'm here to teach you. I pretty much know everything. So tell me your life. I'll help you out. And there's, there is the right timing. You know, I'm, I'm in my 40s. The college students could be my kids. I, I pretty much take that stand. But you know what? I get trained by them, and they know they can challenge me on stuff. But, you know, we need to win each other over. If you're trying to help, a, you're 22, and you're trying to help another 22-year-old. You're 45, help another 45-year-old. You know, we need to have a posture of humility toward one another and win each other over. And when we have a discipling partners or mentors or trainers, we, we need to have humble hearts, eager to learn. We can all learn from everybody. It has to do with our condition, where our heart is at. You can learn from somebody who's not even a Christian. One of my greatest rebukes was a non-Christian rebuking me. Multiple times that happens. Just talk to your, you know, your workplace or your school or your professor or your teacher. They straighten you out oftentimes. We got to have humble hearts. God's intention is that we are called, that we be converted, and that we continue in the faith. I want to close with a a story. A rich woman dreamed that she went to heaven. And when she was there, she saw a huge mansion, beautifully ornate, being built. Who is that for, she asked the guide. This is in her dream. Oh, that's for your gardener. But he lives in the tiniest little home. It's an apartment down there on earth. He's barely enough room to fit his family. He might live better if he didn't have so much, you know, uh, so much poor folk all around him all the time. And if he might do better if he didn't constantly give to so many people and constantly serve people. Farther on, she saw a tiny little cottage being built. It was small, like one of the apartments that she saw on earth. And who is that for, she asked. Oh, that's for you. But I live in a mansion on earth. I'm very wealthy. I would not know how to live in that tiny little apartment. The words she heard in reply were full of meaning. You know, the master builder is doing the best with the material that you sent up, which was not much. The greatest work of all time. Amen.